You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I continue our discussion of primary research with a review of pricing models. How can Van Westendorp, Conjoint, and Max Diff analyses help profit-maximizing outdoor brands and dealers ensure they're selling products at the right price? How can we bundle products and features at an appropriate price to meet the needs of new and existing customers? And which product features are the most important to consider when creating a product? Let's get into it. A question that I got a lot when I was working in consulting uh, revolved around prices and, and the right price for a product, the right add-on price for certain additional features that you could add to a product. And I'm thinking specifically of private companies creating goods for outdoor recreation. I'm also thinking of state or federal agencies setting license prices that also have the additional waterfowl stamp or would be an extra rod stamp so that those who are fishing can um, can fish with a second rod stuck in the in the mud on the banks. Setting the right price is key because if we have it too high, we're going to miss an opportunity to generate revenue from those folks who want to engage in an activity. And if we set it too low, we will be missing out on revenue generating opportunities and we're not really maximizing our profit, which is typically the goal. Like states and federal agencies will sometimes have their own goals. But if we just assume for the sake of this podcast that we're talking to profit maximizing organizations, the goal is to maximize that profit, set that appropriate price. Agreed. So I've got a lot of experience with survey-based pricing techniques. I'm sure you do too, Kelly. Let's talk about it. So so we have a thing we want to sell and we got to figure out how much we want to charge for that thing. Where do we start? Well, after, if, after we've called Kelly and Patrick, of course. But yeah, you know, one of my favorite tools is is the Westendorp. It's a price sensitivity meter. It was created in really the mid-70s by Peter Van Westendorp. He was a Dutch economist. And he and basically it, it is a survey technique, but what it does is it it sort of determines the distribution of of answers when asking about price. Is this price too high, too low, too high, too low? And it's and it's a it's a standardized process. So you end up with some benchmarks too for normal distributions in the data. But what you end up with is you know your your highest tolerance for highest price, and you know you're of course every, there's a group that wishes for zero, but you get an idea of exactly where the pain will begin and demand will be affected and where the sweet spot is in the middle. And that's something that you can do with a, with really a, we'll call it a critical mass of consumers that that are segmented to represent potential buyers of, of mm-hmm. the specific product or from your brand, if, if you're willing to go that broad. You know, there's that's that's one method of doing it, but it's it's tried and, and tested. I've used it, geez, in my life, maybe 15, 16 times. And mm-hmm. it works. It's it's a little bit analog in the sense that, you know, you're not looking at w- at where comparable products are actually priced and, and what kind of demand there actually is at that price point, which is something I recommend in addition to doing this kind of primary work. But it does tell you within a reasonable margin of error, where your price should probably land according to your consumers. Yeah. Yeah. So you said something in there. I want to circle back to you. You said there's going to be the folks that want it to be $0. Like they, yeah. they want no price. Or I think, you know, we talk a lot about 
data quality and ensuring that we have quality data when conducting these sorts of analyses is key. And so creating questionnaires that allow folks to to fall into traps and we can then use those traps to clean folks out that you know give, give us an opportunity to really be sure that we have high quality respondents in there is, is really key and, and there may be some folks who are just unwilling to pay for a certain product and that's fine but cleaning out junk responses that are just straight line zero 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 all the way down is important so that when we connect this analysis we have robust estimates that that we feel confident about when we're presenting the results to private companies or to to whoever the stakeholders may be. Yeah. And also I'll point out that it's it's pretty easy for anybody to set this up. I mean, there are clear guides that you can find with one simple search on the internet, you know, once you once you discover what this what this particular tool can do. You know, that said, you you can always you can there are things that you can do to mitigate junk responses of that nature. For example, you can put basically price bands up. And then you can mm-hmm. measure the difference between different price bands and not include zero. You could include a, I would never buy this product. Um, yeah. like that, but you can, you can, you know, you can 86 the jokers out of your survey response <laughs> you know, with, without, without causing everybody else a lot of pain. You know, one thing I, one thing I hate in survey research is when every single question demands an answer, like, right. And, oh, and it feels very my fat. goodness. Does that drive me nuts? Absolutely drives me crazy. And people, you know, clients ask me to do it and I explain to them why they shouldn't do it. And yet they mm-hmm. still want to do it or set up, set up multiple gates to get into a survey just because you're afraid a couple of people are going to try and cheat. I mean, there are ways to deal with that in, the, yeah. in, in your analysis. You, there are a million different ways to discover that, but I absolutely agree. I think keeping your data clean and, and trying to, trying to devise methodology that keeps it clean from the beginning that doesn't invite that kind of junk respondent. You know, it's not a it's not always going to be leak proof, but I think for the most part you can mitigate that damage without without driving your regular respondents absolutely yeah. insane and driving them yeah. out of your survey, frankly. Without a doubt. All right, so so real quick, I want to ask you the reasons that you cite for not requiring all answers. I I've got a few, but you were on a roll there. I want to let you take it. And well, I'm, in, I'm in total agreement. Oh, no, I, I would argue with you, even if you agree with me 100%, which <laughs> you never will. <laughs> it's um, for two reasons. Number one, it's um, if I want to think about a question a little bit more, sometimes I'll skip it. Or sometimes, sometimes uh, you know, I don't have a response to a question. Yeah. It's like, would you, if I don't have a response and you haven't provided me, by the way, with a not applicable or some other way to get out of answering that yes. question... Or I just don't feel comfortable answering that question, right? I'm not going to, then I'm either going to give you a a junk answer or I'm just going to skip it. And if I'm skipping it because of of those reasons, you need to let me. And if you're going to make me provide you a junk answer to that, I'm out of your survey immediately. Bye-bye. That's why I don't do it. Because it's, it's, I'm willing to take a few incomplete responses because somebody honestly does not have an answer. And I failed to give them an NA. I failed to give them an out. Every time you look at a survey from now on, if they require answers and don't give you a hatch to get out, leave. That's how much I hate it. <laughs> I, I could not agree more, Kelly. Yeah, I, I really identify strongly with your point that I would rather have more surveys that are partially completed than folks leaving the survey halfway through and not giving me some critical piece of information that fell later in that questionnaire. 
just because they got frustrated, they were not able to proceed to the next page without answering those questions. I sort of like, sometimes I'll do a soft require. So Alchemer, previously Survey Gizmo, has a soft require function, which Are means- you sure you don't want to provide us with an answer? Hey, to- you, you skipped this. Yeah. And then if you say, no, I don't want to answer, you, you can navigate beyond it just fine. But it does give you an opportunity to say, no, I actually don't want to answer this. That's okay. In a lot of cases, I like- having the back button so that you can navigate backwards and provide that a response. I, that I, I absolutely, I, there I, are, I saw that in every single survey. Every I single don't do it on every page. So like participation screeners, when we say, sorry, you don't qualify for the survey, you're like, I don't want someone going back and going, back yeah, and actually I, I did ride an e-bike in the last 12 months. Ah, no, no, no. Yeah, I think, that's I think you're already done friend. Yeah. Um, that's a little different than, you know, I don't want to answer a question about say my, yeah. gen- maybe I don't want to answer that question. All of a sudden, I'm in a doom loop in which I have to provide an answer yes. or I can't yes. continue. And that's that's exactly yeah. when I say bye-bye. Or, But actually, what you're referring to are questions, maybe technical questions that I want to think about a little bit. And I'll that's go it. a survey and then one go, I'll go back and answer. So at the end of the survey, if it, you could say, hey, you know, you didn't answer this question. Do you want to answer it? That would be awesome. Yeah, I that's, that's it. Yeah, a lot of our surveys require recall and like, how, how much did you pay for this thing? And if I don't remember off the top of my head, I want to look at my email later and figure out, oh, yeah, you know, I did buy it online for a hundred bucks or whatever. I thought it was 80. Go back and provide a better answer. But I'm with you. I, I want to, to change my answers until I say submit. That's it. I, it should be up to me until I hit that submit button. I also I'm a fan of letting folks know why some questions might be required. Right. So when um, when I do have to ask them demographic questions so that I can wait survey responses so that they they represent census distributions of gender, age, household income, whatever, maybe I'll put in there, hey, we are asking these questions for this reason. Please help us ensure that we have a representative sample. And then I found, you know, when, when you do that, someone is much more likely to give you a real, what, what I perceive to be a real household income response, as opposed to some like the lowest or the highest band, or I don't want to respond. When you help someone understand like, oh, okay, I get it. This isn't just someone who wants to know what a, you know, a 40 something year old man in the Southeast makes like, oh no, this is really actually going to help them produce quality research. Uh, I can share this way better responses. Cause yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Otherwise, why why are you forcing, why are you like holding me at gunpoint and telling me I got to tell you how much money I make? Yeah, that's it. That makes me feel super uncomfortable. <laughs> it, does. it does. Yeah. Put yourself it, in the other side. It's yeah. It's. I mean, I have to be careful, you know, Yeah. divorced, single, living by myself. I'm not putting my income down. Crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way. Yeah. Not even in a uh, band. I'm, I am skipping that question. That's what are I mean. you? Absolutely skipping that question. Can you give me a um, box that says I, you know, I'm not comfortable sharing this information? Yeah, I prefer not to say that's that's a that's in every household income question because that's that's usually it. Typically, in it will add like an I prefer not to say for race and ethnicity questions too. And I get a lot of folks who write in responses to those questions that quickly identify themselves as just the nuttiest people. Yeah, well, I kind of um, like that. There should be there's there's got to be a bucket for like <laughs> it's it's yeah. I like I I I love. You know, the people that are just, you know, outliers. Kelly, I think we might be talking about something different. I'm talking about someone identifying themselves as 
a clay pot when I ask them their race. That's an outlier, but <laughs> you, but that is, I'm a bit, I, I like this, the three strike system. If there's three data quality issues in a survey, I go, all right, you're at, if you tell me you're a clay pot, everything else seems fine. Then all right, maybe, maybe you're fine. But if, if it's that, if you gave me two other junk responses, I don't trust the rest of your numbers. Yeah. I'm with you on and, that. And it's really, you know, if, if I'm then going to go to a board meeting or present my research in front of a state forum, I want to know that that clay pot is not in the price data that's that's helping set the prices for hunting and fishing licenses and and for all the um, permissions that go along with it for the deer tag for the the fur bear trapping for all that stuff. Yeah, well, they're probably at like the, those clean data are important. I'm pretty sure that clay pot was at like Burning Man, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, so so we talked about Weston Dorp. Let's talk about conjoint. Conjoint might be my most fun experiment or, or the experiment I love to do the most. If we imagine a product with multiple attributes and multiple prices, so we say, uh, you know, let's let's take fishing licenses, for example. If I'm in a state that offers saltwater and freshwater fishing, I want to know how much I should sell my freshwater tags for, my saltwater tags for, my combo tags. And uh, I'm also interested in adding a shell fishing tag on there too so that if i'm saltwater fishing i can i can target lobsters and all sorts of crazy cool stuff out there i'll say okay well how much would you we'll get all these attributes categorized in a way that we have type of tag that we have add-ons that we have price let's just keep it there for now and then i'll show you a couple cards and it says how much which of these five options would you be the most interested in purchasing and it has a different set of attributes and a price for let's say five different cards. And when I say cards, like you can visualize playing cards that have written on it, saltwater plus shellfish, $120. Freshwater plus saltwater, $200. Freshwater only, $90, you know? And you go, uh, this is actually the one that has the things that I want. And it's the price that I think is reasonable. And with enough random groupings of these product attributes and prices, you can begin to differentiate how much each attribute commands in price. And then you can bundle those, those attributes together, those, those features, and you can create a product which reflects the prices which customers are willing to pay. Now, it probably takes five different experiments for each, each individual respondent to see. And each of those experiments has four to six different cards, depending on how many features and how many attributes we, we really want to test. And you, you need a pretty big sample, but in order to really suss out the price of each feature, you know, if if we abstract away from licenses and we went back to backpacks, I think we were talking about backpacks in one of our last episodes. And we talk about the presence of a bladder and a waist strap and a laptop sleeve or something, you know, like, well, how much more could I charge for this backpack if it included this extra attribute? There's a price attached to that. And that's really key as we're, as we're trying to design a product that's really going to be profit maximizing for us. That's going to meet the needs of our customers and that's going to sell well on the market. Yeah. I I love conjoint. It is. It's I agree. So with you. It's kind of the most fun to do because you, yeah. you figure out, okay, if we had the, if we had the, you know, the product with all of the cool features we want, you know, it's basically the, it's the Swiss army knife of whatever it is we're doing. Mm -hmm. And then, you, you know, you ask, you ask, you know, potential customers, people that really know, you know what they're talking about, what features they they really want, and what they would pay for them. Then you end up with you know just something that's that's actually just 
perfect for the market. It might not be yeah. exactly what you imagine going into it, but you find out so much about what consumers really care about, right? When you're doing content, yeah, even, yeah. even if it's certain for your product. And it's sort of fun to see, you know, how how the consumer bundles those potential features. And that's another thing you can use Conjoint for. And you mentioned in the beginning is bundling. Like if if I wanted to bundle a couple of different products together and offer them, and I, I saw this in snow sports all the time because, you know, you ended up with skis, boots, bindings, poles, like a beginner package or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you could, you could build all kinds of packages and price them in a way that encourages your consumers to, to buy more, yeah. frankly. And, and, you know, they, they, their perceptions, they're getting a better deal. They're getting great product. They're going to be all set, which is nice in the outdoors. And it's, this is why Conjoint's fun because you learn about what people, what people really want in your products and in the experience they're about to have with your product out in the outdoors and how they, how they think about that. It's always fascinating to me to see how people think about how they're going to use something in their outdoor experience because it's it's some of it's hilarious, right? And <laughs> and some of it's surprising, and some of it you learn a lot, right? Yeah. Like I've learned a lot about stoves. <laughs> Go oh, figure. Sure. In this kind of analysis, I've learned a lot about a lot of things doing this kind of analysis. So yeah, I agree. It's the most fun you can have, you know, with with market research if you're actually you know down and dirty and doing the analysis. It's super fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the other. The other thing that bundling analysis really helps with is creating packages of goods or bundles of goods that meet the needs of new participants. And so if I'm brand new to skiing, to use your example, I I want to reduce the friction of having to make four decisions about skis, bindings, boots, poles. And I just want someone to say, here's our beginner pack. Here's the price. We're going to take care of you. We're going to help you get from zero to competent with this product that, that is going to satisfy the majority of your needs here. That's really killer for folks who might be intimidated by the prospect of buying a lot of equipment to get in outdoors because there are some activities that require a lot of equipment. You know, like we've talked about it before. Cycling is not just a bike, but there's a helmet. There can be gloves. There can be padded shorts. There's going to be, you know, a, a tech shirt at the very least. What if you are worried about having a flat where you, you're going to want to carry a tube and tire lever and CO2 or a frame pump? And like all of a sudden it just starts snowballing. Meet folks where they are. Give them, you know, you you know what they need. Help them find what they need. And, and conjoint analysis and, and bundling analyses uh, really, really help identify opportunities to maximize on that interaction. Excellent. So I, you know, we're going to have links so that our listeners can understand conjoint analysis and Western Dorp. But where would somebody go if you know let's let's say I'm a small brand I'm making a, mm-hmm. a couple of apparel SKUs and I want to do this you know I've got a new I've got a new product I want to do this but I don't know how to do this and I don't really have that many resources where should I go I've got an answer uh, for you, but I want to hear yours too is is it to give Kelly Davis or Patrick Hogan a show pretty much <laughs> yeah I'm just yeah, I'm, I'm plugging I'm plugging OIA and people for bikes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it's not us, then we've got plenty of friends in the outdoor space that can also do this. I love using Lighthouse Studio. Uh, their their sawtooth product is really great at conjoint analyses, and their their built in features for conducting analyses within the the survey platform itself, and then spitting out really easily digestible uh, reports is is killer. Uh, but it does take a lot of times a an experienced analyst to, to produce these studies because the the survey design that goes into the beginning of it is really critical 
And if that's not just right, the results that come out of the, the end of it are not going to point your organization in the right direction to have a profit maximizing product. Yeah. And there's standalone tools that allow you to do conjoint and you can collect the data in another, in another platform and, and then, you know, use, use another application to do your conjoint analysis or your Western door, but you've got to set these studies up correctly. So you're asking the right questions, which is pretty much the key to all good market research. You've got to be asking the right questions. And I mean, I, I've worked in our studio on this uh, a few mm-hmm. times. I use Qualtrics Stats IQ, which I do not have access to anymore to do a lot of conjoint. Um, and I'm just going to take a minute to cry about that. But our studio is available to anybody for free, If you, but you've got to understand how to code. And there are times when I call somebody that I know that that is just way faster and way better at coding than I am. And, and I tell that that person, I tell Liz, <laughs> my best code buddy, like, here's what I need. Here's what I need out of this. And, yeah. you know, five minutes later, I've got code for it. ChatGPT will write your code for you if you want. In R. Oh, yeah. Stacks Overflow. Like there's there's lots of really good resources for RStudio because it's an open source product. Yeah. And, and so there's huge communities of folks out there that have had the same question that you've had. And, and finding answers is so much easier than it is for a product. I, I use SPSS a lot and I love SPSS, but it's an expensive product from IBM. And there's not a lot of open discussion boards about how to solve that. There's a lot of support and FAQ from the IBM page. And it, it's not quite the same as when there's a community of like really engaged programmers and, and researchers that are helping each other solve problems for our studio. So yeah, I I love our studio. I use it as much as possible. I, I've turned a, a few folks at um, People for Bikes into programmers too. Oh, nice. And it's not, you know, it, it, it's funny because you see the interface and you go, wow, this is intimidating if you haven't used it before. And you go, no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> It's it's intuitive. It's supported by a huge community of folks that that want to help you find the right answers. It's really a great solution for for so many of our analyses. So, yeah, I, I haven't used it for conjoint analyses, but um, that's only because I've had other tools that have done it very well and and uh, plugged into tools that I was using. So that was conjoint. I think the last one that I wanted to bring up was MaxDiff. Uh, which I'm sure folks have seen at one point or another. If you can imagine a survey asking you of these six things, which is the most important, which is the least important. And those six things could include, to go back to our backpack, a laptop sleeve, a bladder, a waistband, and price, you know, like which is most important is price the most important. And be seeing enough of these cards. Let's say you see 10 of these experiments, most important, least important, most important, least important. They're shuffled. And so if we're seeing five at a time, that means there's really 12 on the back end. And we're seeing groups of five of these that are all sort of looking similar, but we're seeing five different options every time. And what, what falls out of this is a hierarchy of importance of each of these attributes, including features of a product, and, and price that helps us understand how sensitive folks are to price and how much more important some of these features might be when considering a product to purchase. And, and it's easy to imagine the really avid participant is really focused on performance and like some, some product feature that's going to help them do like the niche activity that they want to do. And they're willing to pay whatever price. Price is not important. They're going to pay $10,000 for that product. And there are other folks who might be less avid, who might be more casual, who price is really important for them. And they want to make sure that they're they're getting a good product, they're getting a good value, and they're willing to prioritize price over some of the other performance 
performance of the other features. I love Max Diff. I mean, I just, I, I love seeing the breadth of the distribution anytime you yeah. can do that. And it's, it's super fun. It's, it's, that's just a game of variance, isn't it? For mathematicians and economists like us is it's, you know, really finding where there's just a, there's a broader spectrum. Um, yeah. And it's also identifying, you know, top and bottom, which is, I'm saying basically the same thing, but you, you, know, yeah. you get an idea of, of, you know, least and most, which it's a type of analysis that I didn't trip across until maybe the first time I heard of Max Diff was like 10 years ago. Like I didn't study it in hmm. graduate school, which dates me, but that's all right. And I did, I hadn't tripped across it for a long time. And yeah, yeah I, the, the first time I came across it, I was at, I was at snow sports and I was like, Oh, this is super interesting. And um, let's see if we can, if we can figure out how to use it. It was the first time I used it. It's been really effective. It's been a super effective tool. It's like, it's sort of yeah. a, it's not a hammer, you know, you can use it for a lot of different things. It's more of a crescent wrench of research tools to me. I, I really love to use it for segmentation, for like motive-based segmentation. I've done this four or five times the last few years. Which of these is the most motivating, which is the least motivating? And if we think about cycling, it would be like spending time with my friends, being outside, exercising, like, uh, you know, lots and lots of different reasons why folks like to engage on a bike. And then you use the HB analysis from your max diff experiment to define segments. And there are going to be segments that are most motivated by socializing, least motivated by exercise and like physical exertion. That's fine. There are other groups that are most motivated by solitude, least motivated by social and like really separating folks to like, you go stand in this corner. And then I think you go stand in this corner and you go stand in this corner and you start to like put people in their little buckets and in, in the corners of their rooms. And it, it has created some really strong, robust segmentation models for me because it allows folks to like, it is really sensitive to all of the different features and attributes that you throw into the experiment. So it's a really powerful tool. And I, yeah, I like the crescent wrench metaphor. That's great. Yeah, well, you're right. Segmentation is one of the principal places to use it. it just helps you understand your consumers and your potential consumers that much better. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can have conjoint, you know what they think about your products, but you can know them specifically. <laughs> so yeah, I think you hit on the call to action, which is that if you feel like you need work in this area, call up your uh, friendly neighborhood nerds, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.